Saturday. One of our episodes on the show this week was a brief history of gardening. And we mentioned in that episode that we have some other gardening-adjacent topics in our back catalog. Several of them have been Saturday classics relatively recently, so we went way back, way back for this one. It is our February 7th, 2011 episode on tulip mania. And this episode was from previous hosts of the show, Sarah and Dublina. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And we're going to start off today's episode with a little story, a legend. And it's about a merchant in 17th century Holland. And he greets one of his ships. It's just arrived from abroad. And he gives a sailor on board a herring for lunch. Very generous of him. Mm -hmm. And the sailor is looking for a little something to eat with his herring, a little side dish, looking around the ship. And he finds some root-like vegetables on board. And he thinks they're onions. So he cuts them up and he fries them with some oil and vinegar or some sort of condiments to to make them tasty, and he eats them with his fish. And through this sailor's innocent mistake, the merchant ends up losing more on the meal than he would have if he had bought the prince himself the finest feast in the land. Um, so you'll, you've probably heard this story before, and you'll find it rehashed and retold in tons of sources and articles that you might read in your favorite business journal today. And it really epitomizes the financial bubble that shook the 17th century Dutch Republic, uh, which, as the story goes, rich and poor people alike speculated on tulip bulbs and um, they were destroyed when ultimately the market dropped before the bulbs had even bloomed. And almost since then, this little tale, not just the the story of the bulbs mistaken as onions, but this greater story has been an anecdote for business writers to use as a cautionary tale, as, as something to, to watch out for. Don't get too crazy about get-rich-quick schemes, or you might find yourselves like the Dutch. Yeah, and know what you're eating. Yeah, That's no. another aspect of it That's for another me. lesson learned. <laughs> and one reason you'll find that this herring, exotic onion, side dish story in print so frequently is because it really makes a nice historical counterpart to current events. Um, articles about the dot-com bubble, the housing bubble, even a tiny bubble of Beanie Babies that happened in the late 90s. So I'm I'm proud I was not part of that bubble. Even, yeah, neither was I. Even I was probably a really at risk population to be part of it, but I I avoided it. And yeah, it's just to give you an example though of how often this story is used by business writers. Um, I found this particular version in the Economist. So I mean, there you go, kind of one of the ultimates there. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the tulip bubble or tulip mania. It's called lots of different things. And try to figure out why the bottom fell out. And also sort of throw a wrench in the mix here and talk about the revisionist history that's really changed the story a lot in the past year, or at least gotten a lot of people thinking. Um, but before we we go into the trade as a whole, we've got to discuss the history of the commodity itself, tulips, which uh, have a pretty a pretty interesting history, I must say, for for a flower that you uh, that looks like an onion potentially. 
Yes, they do. And writer Anna Pavard, who wrote just one of the surprisingly large number of books on tulips that have come out since 1999, said that the tulip is a flower that has carried more political, social, economic, religious, intellectual, and cultural baggage than any other on earth. So put that in your vase. I know. (laughs) I never knew. See what you think of it. Um, But the tulip used to just be another wildflower, of course. It it didn't start with this history. It was one that grew in Turkey and Central Asia, and there are still more than 100 species there today. I looked them up online. They're really pretty. They don't look that much like, I mean, you can tell they're related, but they don't look that much like the tulips that you might grow in your garden today. They're they're sort of pointier and a little more open, almost like um, buttercups or something rather than Holland-grown tulips. Sound very nice. With the Ottomans, they brought these bulbs into their courtyards and domesticated them. And they were just obsessed as the Dutch would become with these flowers. They're, they like the long, narrow flowers with the pointy petals. And they use them as a decorative motif in things like embroidery and tiles. They even had a special vase for one blossom. But by the mid-1500s, tulips were brought to Europe by Ogier Gislain de Buzbeck, the ambassador for Ferdinand I of Austria to Suleiman the Magnificent. Yeah, and a little side note on this ambassador here. Uh, we mentioned in the earlier episode on Cinderella of the Harem that Suleiman sort of started this tradition of not speaking to ambassadors presented at his court. And so we can imagine that Ogier Gislain definitely suffered under this cold eye of Suleiman. Um, at one point, actually, he he more than suffered. At one point, the sultan placed him under house arrest. He was eventually <laughs> freed. Um, and when he does come back to Austria, he brought not only tulip seeds, not tulip bulbs, tulip seeds, which take a really, really long time to turn them into tulips. But he didn't just bring back those. He brought back lilacs and angora goats, too, which I guess that's why he didn't bring the bulbs. The goats probably took took a lot lot of room. (laughs) Yeah, they sound like they'd be pretty tough to transport. Holland, though, had to wait a few more years for tulips. But in 1593, Carolus Clusius, who was the prefect of the Imperial Herb Gardens in Vienna, he brought some bulbs with him when he immigrated and headed up to a new botanical gardens in Leiden. So basically, he was taking a new position and brought them along. Um, And Clusius, he bred these tulips mostly for medicinal purposes, but he considered them to be beautiful, too. So dual purpose there. Well, and and I have one more thing to add about the medicinal (laughs) purposes. I'm not sure what these medicinal purposes were because I looked into it and um, tulips, especially their bulbs, are filled with glycosides, which are extremely toxic. And according to the Nova Scotia Museum, during World War II, um, some starving Dutch cattle and people had to resort to eating bulbs and they would get quite sick from it. Um, so y'all should actually all thank Devlina for, <laughs> for making me go look up why Clausius was using these for medicinal purposes before I, like, accidentally recommended that tulips made good medicine and everybody ate the bulbs that they had just brought from Pikes or something. Stick to your pharmacies, guys. <laughs> That's our official recommendation. But luckily, uh, Clusius here, as I said, he uh, he also loved the bulbs for their pretty. beauty. Yeah. And many other people did, too. He really had a hard time preventing the bulbs from being stolen out of his garden. So... 
the attraction begins. Yeah, it, it definitely begins with his garden. Um, and presumably it's from these stolen bulbs and others hopefully purchased legitimately um, that a trade in tulips emerges. And the traders are called Blumiston, uh, which means tulip traders. It also kind of means tulip fanciers or tulip enthusiasts, which is something that you should keep in mind when we get into the speculative nature of this later story. Um, But yeah, I mean, basically the point is that these first traders love tulips too. They're not just in it for the money. They're collectors. And this is a time when collecting things for your curio is really, really popular. Um, When you would, you'd add uh, seashells and and things like that, interesting rocks and minerals um, and display them. And it would show that you were an educated, cultured person. So you had to have a love for them. And you also had to have some good faith to deal in tulips, too. And here's why. Traditionally, the trade, the tulip trade, was done in the summer. Flowers bloomed in May or June. And after that, the bulb was dug up and it was kept to dry indoors. The bulbs then had to be inspected and they were sold just before they were replanted in September. So the seller would deliver the bulb and the buyer would pay up. Yeah, so the issue here is pretty apparent. It's that if you're the buyer, you don't know exactly what you're getting. You don't know if it's the same bulb, that one that you contracted for. You don't know if it's the bulb that you saw bloom and it looked so pretty last spring. And you don't know if it's a bulb that's going to perform as well as the one you saw. I mean, there's already going to be a little... Um, uncertainty in any kind of horticultural pursuit. But there's the potential for deception here, too, which made people pretty nervous. And to make matters worse, bulbs bought in the ground didn't always bloom as people expected them to, even if they were the same, even if there wasn't some sort of fraud happening. And that's partly because the most popular tulips at the time were uh, called broken tulips. And um, if you if you look at an old watercolor or painting of tulips, you're probably looking at broken tulips. They have these feather flame petals um, on a light background, so something like red or purple, a stripe going up the middle of each petal. And the tulip would bloom like a normal solid color tulip one year, and then the next year it would bloom as this broken flower, uh, like a total surprise to everyone, it seemed. And its descendants, any any descendant from that bulb, would also bloom splotched and broken. And so at the time, people didn't know why this happened. It seemed like pure chance, but these were the tulips they wanted. Today we know that, ironically, it's caused by a virus, which is delivered by aphids. And because the broken tulips were, I mean, I don't want to say sick. They're not, um, they're not unable to, to thrive in a certain sense, but they are a little bit weaker. Because they're weaker, the bulbs reproduced, uh, they didn't re- reproduce as fast as a good, unaffected healthy bulb should. And so it drove up the price. It made these broken flowers even more valuable and more desirable. And weren't you saying that um, with the the blotchiness, the splotchiness on the petal, you couldn't tell how it would be splotched yeah, from year to year? Yeah, that was chance too. So maybe it was some ugly splotch he didn't like, or maybe it was these perfect flames going up the middle of the petal. Um, so you didn't know what you were going to get, even if you were dealing with someone who's trustworthy. 
So the most expensive tulip at the time was Semper Augustus, which was a red and white striped variety, and it went for a thousand florins which was six times the annual income of an average person at that time. Yeah, but even as early as 1610, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, a single rare bulb made an acceptable dowry and an entire brewery, and I like, I think the encyclopedia mentions specifically a thriving brewery in France was sold for one bulb, um, one highly coveted bulb. So we see these examples of people getting pretty obsessed with tulips early on. But it was in 1634 or 1635, depending on which source you look at, that prices got really, really high. And at that point, business started to change. And so instead of the the system Dublina described a minute ago, where the bulbs were sold in late summer when they were dug up, um, the bulbs were now sold by weight while they were still in the ground. Um, so this is fundamentally changing the process of the tulip trade. Yeah, you may wonder how they could even pull this off. Well, you what would happen is you'd get the details of the bulb, what its weight was at planting, its expected weight come September, but that's it. There was no bulb. So it was actual paper descriptions of the bulbs that were sold instead of the bulbs themselves. So yeah. you imagine like getting this piece of paper for something that you've paid money for. It's kind of... Um, well, I mean, imagine if you were buying tulips now for your garden and that was the deal you got. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be very happy with it. Um, and to to deal with this new system, this um, this selling by weight system, tulip bulbs even got their own unit of measure called the ozen, I think, um, also called aces, where one of this unit equaled about 0.0018 ounces. So super, super tiny units of measure as it would have to be. But for the bloomiston, there was money to be made even if the price per ozen didn't change. As long as your bulbs grew in the ground, your profits were going to climb. So as demand continued to grow for these, the offsets started to sell as well as mature bulbs, which means offsets were basically, they were Little bulbets. Yeah, they were little bulbets. They took three to five years to produce flowers of their own. So a pretty risky venture. Yeah, definitely. Even more risky. so than getting the pieces of paper instead of your actual bulb. Well, because you're no longer even buying a bulb that, well, yeah, I saw that bulb bloom in May mm-hmm. just this year. It's maybe, fingers crossed, it'll bloom in three to five years. Um, so a very risky business. And by 1636, there's a futures market, too, where buyers would contract to buy an in-ground bulb at a set price gambling that it would eventually, when it was finally dug up, it would be worth more than the expected value. And um, contracts themselves were bought and sold. And I think uh, people who were a little skeptical of this whole market called the whole thing the wind trade because you never knew which way the wind would blow. (laughs) Um, And you ultimately had to hope that there would be someone at the end who would pay up when those bulbs came out of the ground. That was what they were all gambling on. Um, To make matters worse, buyers start buying without the money. So they're buying on credit. And the sellers accept that because they're gambling on the fact that the buyer himself will probably be able to sell at a higher price eventually as well. Again, all counting on that one person at the end of the chain who's willing to pay up. And the fact that the bulb actually turns out the way it's (laughs) planned. Yeah. A lot of bets going on here. 
So how high did this actually go? How much were people actually spending on these bulbs? Well, there's some information from 1637 floating around, uh, a nursery catalog actually from a Harlem florist, and it lists the name, weight, and price of a tulip viceroy, for example. There were lists of other tulips as well. But for this tulip viceroy, a lightweight bulb sold for 3,000 guilders, a heavy bulb sold for 4,200. So the low price here was 20 times the annual salary of a skilled craftsman. Yeah. And I mean, again, we, we need to point out a few things even with this. We don't know if if uh, this tulip bulb viceroy sold for this amount or, or if this is all part of the speculation, but what was the offering price? Um, and it's it really is kind of a, I don't want to say unique, but um, a rare statistic from this time of of a tulip bulb's name and its price and its weight all being put out there. We don't have that much information about it. Uh, and this whole era is sort of filled with these legends. There's another really great one from this time, which might even be better known than that herring uh, onion bulb beginning that we told. But the legend of the black tulip, which ultimately inspired Alexander Dumas' novel, uh, also called The Black Tulip, um, this one... It, this one is starting to show that there's bad feelings in the tulip trade. It goes like this. There's a group of Harlem florists, and they hear that a cobbler at The Hague has produced a black tulip, a rare coveted black tulip. And they go to him, and they haggle with him for a while, and they finally work out a deal. They buy it for 1,500 florins, and as soon as it's theirs— they take it and they throw it on the ground and they stomp it to bits and they tell him that he's a fool to have produced this black tulip and to have sold it to them for so little. They would have given him 10,000 florins if he had asked. And they tell him that he'll never, ever be so lucky again to breed this black tulip. And as the story goes, he's so distraught that he takes to bed and he dies, of course, that has to be the end to this moral fairy tale kind of <laughs> this thing. This black story. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of bitterness even if we even if we step away from this like obviously polemical story. Yeah, it was bitterness about people who quite didn't understand the tulip thing or didn't thought yeah, it was kind of crazy, <laughs> kind of out there, but probably like a lot of people now do. Um, for example, Harlem priest Iodicus Katz wrote to his nephew on February 5th, 1637, that like the plague that had been bad since 1635, now, quote, another sickness had risen. It is the sickness of the Bloomiston and Floriston. Also, historian Theodorus Trevelius wrote a much later in 1648, he wrote a letter that said, quote, I don't know what kind of angry spirit was called it from hell, but our descendants doubtless will laugh as the, at the human insanity of our age, that in our times the tulip flowers have been so revered. So, yeah, a lot of self-criticism even at the time. Um, like, what are we doing spending all of this money and obsessing over tulips? So surprise, surprise, by February 1637, the market collapses. Supposedly, as the traditional story goes, um, it's because an expected buyer fails to show up and the whole market loses confidence. Uh, but more likely, it's just that people started to realize around this time that the paper chain of buying and trading these uh, these little descriptions of tulips that are in the ground would only work and they would only make their profit if there was a buyer at the end, as we mentioned before. So yeah, like if I bought a tulip from you, Dublina, 
and I was trying to make money off of it, I would know that I had to get like our producer, Jerry, to buy the bulb ultimately because if she didn't buy it, then I'd be left with the tulip bulb and trying to decide if I even wanted to pay you for it. So it might all end up on your lap. No way. (laughs) Cracking skulls at that point. Um, So the sellers want their money, but there's really no way to enforce these oral agreements. Um, As Sarah mentioned, they probably weren't as violent as I just was. (laughs) Um, By March or so, it's suggested that all trades since the previous September be nullified. But at that point, the high court steps in. They say basically – deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. What they say is all transactions remain in force, but deal with it yourselves. Don't come to us about it, essentially. And so, I mean, just one example of how people tried to deal with it, there was a self-established commission of tradesmen set up in Harlem, and they decided that the contracts there would be settled for 3.5% of the purchase price. And of course, nobody is happy with this. It's a lose-lose situation for everyone. If you are left with the bulb, you are expecting a lot more for that. And, you know, presumably you've been making some bets yourself. If you're stuck paying 3.5% of the purchase price, you're just throwing away money, essentially. So at this point, the story gets kind of mythic again. And, you know, it's kind of like the black tulip. So supposedly the bubble bust just shakes the Dutch economy to a tremendous extent because the investment is so widespread. Uh, There are speculators across classes, so bankruptcy is common, and um, people lose their houses and their businesses for tulips. And it becomes the classic cautionary tale of being a little more careful with your money. And sort of the poster boy for it is Jan van Goyen, who was an artist and supposedly died in debt because of tulips. We'll, we'll find out a little bit more about that lately, he, later. He did die in debt, but not necessarily because of his tulip speculation. So needless to say, it's painted as a pretty dire situation and it's easy to see how it was used as a cautionary tale. Recently, though, there's been a little bit of a shift in how some people look at the tulip bubble. For example, writer Anne Goldger suggested in 2007's Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age, that the idea that the tulip mania was economically devastating to Holland is the result of a few contemporary polemical pamphlets, which were written to basically make people more prudent in their own business affairs. These, in turn, she suggests, were taken up by historians and gradually filtered into fact. So, yeah, and and sort of to add to that, because they because this story has so frequently been used as an anecdote, it sort of took on a sheen of current bubble comparison. So, if you're if you're writing about the South Sea bubble, or if you're writing about um, housing housing today, yeah, it, it takes on a little bit of whatever you're comparing it to. And in a review for Reviews in History, J. Leslie Price wrote that the book was, quote, determinedly revisionist. So, I mean, I, I really think this, this book kind of shook up the tulip story. But <laughs> um, to add to that, recently a lot of economists have debated whether it was a bubble at all. And, and there are 
precise economic definitions for for what that means that we're not going to get into. But um, it it seems to be like maybe a fun exercise for economists or or perhaps a serious study um, to figure out if there was a bubble and then to debate either for or against it. Yes, there was a bubble. No, there were market reasons behind it. Um, it it's created a whole whole new topic of discussion for these tulips. Yeah. And similarly, I think looking at Goldger's argument is kind of a fun exercise for historians as well, because she's just sort of searching for the source that this tale came from in the first place. Definitely. I always I always like when I get a surprise like this in an episode. I mean, I'm always relieved that I found this update to the story. <laughs> it terrifies me that I won't someday, but um, it's it's fun for us for sure. Yeah. So just a little bit on Goldger's argument. Most of her revisions, so to speak, come at the sake of traditional tulip sources or the canon, you might say. Yeah. Um, and a lot of our traditional sources on tulip mania come from Charles Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which was published in 1841. It's a pretty popular book. It's actually still in print. I looked it up. You could you could order it. Um, and it paints a lot of these really exciting stories about the bubble, like the mistaken onions and things like oxen, cheese, and clothes being traded for one viceroy bulb, um, the really picturesque accounts of the story. But as Goldgar uncovered, it turned out Charles Mackay's main source was Johann Beckmann, who wrote A History of Inventions, Discoveries, and Origins in 1797. And Beckman is an interesting character because he seems to be one of the first major people who projected his contemporary concerns onto the Dutch bubble. So economic concerns for his time. Um, and he may have also been the guy who gave us the idea that the bubble burst because the Bloomiston became pure speculators. They weren't just collectors anymore. And he seemed to view this almost as as expected, that, well, surely you wouldn't just be tulip fanciers and spend these huge amounts of money. But he wrote, quote, how ridiculous would it have been to purchase useless roots with their weight in gold if the possession of the flower had been the only object? Pretty. I guess he did, wasn't into tulips. No, apparently not. So he his argument kind of relies on Abraham Munting, a botanical writer from the 17th century whose father lost money on tulips. But since Munting was too young to be there firsthand, his sources also came from somewhere else. So his sources came from a chronicler named Luva von Eitzema in 1669 and also a propaganda piece by Adrian Roman from 1637. So Eitzema was also drawing from sources from pamphlets and were left at this point with pamphlets as like the basis, the main source for yeah. all of this stuff. When we filter it all down. When you filter it all down to the bottom, that's what you get. And so, of course, the pamphlets are going to be anti-speculation. They're going to be encouraging people to not go out and blow all their money on tulips. But it's interesting because Golker also takes a closer look at a few of the most famous mania anecdotes and assumptions. For instance, the artist I mentioned earlier who died in debt, for example, he did die in debt. 
but it was much later in 1656, perhaps in debt for yet another speculative scheme, but not tulips. And another issue that Goldger addresses is the idea that the bubble had such a tremendously broad effect on the economy because so many people were involved, rich people, poor people, people in between. Instead, she argues that the Bloomiston were this really tight-knit group of people who worked together for years and years and years. Most of them loved collecting tulips as well as trading them. And they would meet in inns and dispute tulip, you know, have tulip talk with each other and dispute and exchange and trade. And so certain members of the Bloomiston were obviously severely shaken by the crash, but their numbers were smaller than often thought. And of course, even if you were a speculator, you didn't get into too much trouble if you were in the middle of that chain, because hopefully things would cancel cancel other things out, other debts and credits. Um, so just sort of suggesting that maybe there was a smaller pool of people affected by this crisis. Yeah, the entirety of Holland wasn't devastated because of this, uh, the tulip bubble. Yeah. But Goldger also suggests that the bubble was indeed a social and cultural crisis. So she doesn't deny that in her book at all. Yeah, a real value shock for, for the people of the country. And in the 1630s, the Dutch Republic was in boom times. It was it was really good period. And capitalism was sort of taking off, but didn't quite sit right with everybody yet. And the bubble scared people for a few reasons, apparently enough to make them write some of these very angry, concerned pamphlets. So a few of those scary things, I mean, the main one is that buyers reneged after prices fell. Nobody likes to see that. That's a that's a bad sign for business. And then there was the fact that the sellers basically had no recourse to get their money back. Um, this one is interesting. Um, the Mennonites, this was one of the reasons, is that the Mennonites who refused to swear oaths and were considered very trustworthy, they were also involved in the tulip trade and that act of broken Some promises. Of them mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like, if you can't trust the Mennonites, who can you trust? Yeah, it was it was unsettling for your average person. And I mean, if we go into the product itself, it was disturbing to people that a product's value no longer had to seem at least roughly on par with its market worth. You have a bulb that somebody can mistake as an onion, although with that toxic substance. I don't know. Probably best to not mistake it as an onion. Um, You have something that seems low value suddenly going for huge amounts. And scariest of all, though, is that people could get rich through luck rather than work, which could potentially upset the social order, which was a very dangerous thing indeed. Right. So lots of scary new modern things kind of all jumbled up together there. And We sort of talked about this earlier, how we liked both versions of the story, both the revisionist history on how the valid trade failed and kind of the hysterical tale of viceroy speculation that makes such a quaint and, um, I guess, interesting intro to stories on modern booms and busts. Yeah, I I like the story about the cow going for a tulip bulb. And it's obviously quite likely that Economists will continue to debate whether this was really a bubble at all. I've seen all sorts of back and forth. Yes, it is a bubble. No, it isn't. There were market explanations. Yes, how could you not think it was a bubble? Everybody has an opinion. And I guess if they work it all out eventually, though, and it turns out to not be a bubble, 
business writers are going to be out of a really tasty anecdote. Yeah, I mean, it does make a good hook for a Maybe story. They can still use it. Maybe they can. I would still. I would still read it. Yeah, definitely. And we just thought it would be appropriate to close with some current statistics about the Netherlands tulip production and maybe a note on the Dutch Republic, too. I I didn't have all this straightened out, honestly, and I had to look into it some. The difference between the Dutch Republic, Holland, and the Netherlands, uh, why we have mentioned Holland so much rather than the Dutch Republic is because at the time, the tulip trade took place mostly within Holland and its cities like Amsterdam and The Hague and Leiden and Harlem. Um, Today, though, the kingdom of the Netherlands makes up three parts. There's the Netherlands in Europe, which, of course, includes Holland, and the Netherlands Antilles and Aruba, so all over the world. But Good geography the, lesson for you there. Yeah, it's a little pop geography question. And a little economics lesson to top it off. Um, today, the Netherlands still produces three billion bulbs a year, so it didn't completely wipe out the tulip trade, even if the story of the bubble is true. Fields cover half the country, and the Dutch flower industry actually has 70% of international production of flowers and 90% of the trade. So, People take vacations just to, to see the flowers blooming. They look lovely. I was looking at the tourist website while I was doing some research on this. Pretty nice. Very nice. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 